I cannot think of a time in my life where I have had more seemingly pressing things to be distracted by than these last few months. I mean, every four years that this happens, there's so much going on with the election. Uh, there's so many different stories, so many allegations, so, so much being said by the candidates that you, you feel like you need to read about, that you need to be in the know about. Um, and, but this year definitely seems the craziest. And, and you add to that all of the social justice issues that are sweeping through our country, the, the riots and just crazy things that are being uh, proposed and endorsed by celebrities and news media outlets, and, and all of this taking place during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and with all of the various positions and views and, and, and the fear that you see constantly on display everywhere about that. And you see, all of these issues and then all of those issues have just a myriad of sub-issues that are connected to them. And, and through your conversations with friends and your coworkers, uh, your decision to watch the news or, or scroll through social media for just a few minutes, you continue to see that, that next thing that you need to read, that, that next video that you need to watch, the next thing you need to respond to or have an answer for. And maybe you are like me and you have found yourself at the end of each day just kind of exhausted and disgusted and saddened and and maybe even a little fearful. The church in America is definitely going through some testing right now. Ramifications of all of these issues are sifting professing Christians like wheat and exposing many tares. I don't want to minimize everything that's going on, right now. I, I do believe that these are all important issues, and it is the responsibility of, of Christians to see and discuss and respond to these issues in a way that brings glory and honor to God. But I also see the great providence of God in having our church looking at the passage that we are going to be looking at over these next two weeks with what may or may not be the most important election in American history sandwiched in between. Because what we need to see more than anything as a church right now, in, in all of this chaos, we, we need to step back and behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. As we are inundated with, with news stories and social media posts and articles and commercials and conversations with friends, all clamoring for our attention, all about things that are, that are even important, Telling us, they're, they're grabbing our eyes and saying, look over here. Now, now look over here. They're pulling us in every direction. We need to pause. We need to read the word of God that we see to the church of Philippi in this text today, telling us, no, no, no. Look here. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at him. Brothers and sisters, that is what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks because in a culture that is confused about character, that glamorizes and celebrates all forms of immorality, that looks to Hollywood of all places for an example on how to live, 
And in a Christian culture that watches so-called Christian leader after so-called Christian leader fall and fail and disgrace himself only to be lifted back up and put in charge again, the church that is in this culture desperately needs to see the example of Jesus Christ. And in a culture that is swimming in worry and fear and desperately looking to be rescued from the dangers of disease and the dangers of global warming and the dangers of injustice or the dangers of loss of freedom, culture looking for deliverance from these things and, and even more than those things from the hand of just the right sinful person, The church that is in this culture desperately needs to see the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So, this week we will be looking in this passage at the example of Christ, and next week, the exaltation of Christ. And we're going to be doing that by studying what is by far the most famous passage in the book of Philippians, the one one of the most, actually one of the most important passages in the Bible. Uh, more secondary literature has been published and written discussing Philippians 2, 5 through 11, as I discovered this week, than almost the rest of the book combined. So please, if you're not there, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be um, looking at verses 5 through 8 today, 9 through 11 next week, verses 6 through 11 um, that's that, the famous section. It's often referred to as the, the Carmen Christi or the, the hymn to Christ. It's one of, again, one of the most important uh, uh, Christological passages in the Bible. Any systematic theology or, or book on Christology must give an extended portion of time uh, to addressing this passage that we're going to look at today and next week. But as we look at it, We need to remember the importance of the context in which it is found. As many of the the theological errors that have been made with this text have come as the the, the, the direct result of removing it from its context and analyzing it outside of it. So... Uh, so so to, to heed that warning, let's look at, let's read together verses 1, uh, starting in verse 127, all the way through 2.11, to, to kind of remind us where we've already been in this letter, and the, the point that Paul has been making here. Paul says to the Philippians, starting in 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So even though the kind of famous part of this passage doesn't begin until verse 6, Verse 5 is extremely important. It's extremely important because it, it forces us to recognize the purpose for why Paul says what he says in the following verses. So any interpretation of these verses must recognize that Paul has placed them here as the supreme illustration of what he was imploring the Philippians to live like in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And as a kind of a further subcategory of what it means to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul is concerned about the unity of the church in Philippi. He has just told them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This, this goes, that type of thinking, as we've talked about already, that goes against everything in us, and, and it goes against everything that the culture tells us to think. It, it really is a, a radical command. It's one of the chief examples of an obvious biblical command that we all know that we are supposed to obey, but that we fail at all the time and kind of just make excuses for it's, it's almost one of those, to use Jerry Bridges' term, respectable sins. We just kind of decide to live with our failure in. We, get, we maybe get excited and, and point to the times when we do put others above ourselves, and then we kind of minimize all the other areas in our life where we don't. And so, th so this is the context for this extremely important passage. Paul longs for the Philippian church to live in the reality of the unity in Christ that they have been saved into, to, to put aside all distractions, all the bickering, all the worldly priorities that are a danger to church unity, and to embrace your membership in the body of Christ by no longer thinking of yourself as an autonomous individual who has the freedom to act or do whatever you want. Now they are completely, they are to completely die to themselves and to do everything in light of the reality that they are individual members of the body of Christ. And therefore they need to fight against selfish ambition and truly count others as more significant than themselves. So, 
to help them to understand what this looks like, just how it is that they can accomplish this impossible task, he points them to Jesus. He says, look at Jesus Christ. Actually, he he points to Jesus Christ, what he has done and what the Father has done for him, and he says to, the actual word, he says to think like him. Think like Jesus. To, to live out the Christian life in the church, to truly be the one who is able to, in humility, count others more significant than yourself, you need to have the mind of Christ. This is Paul's point. This is the reason verses 6 through 11 are in our Bible. It's because Paul is trying to help the church in Philippi become humble, to become humble, selfless church members. So the primary reason why this passage has caused so much confusion is because so many people have tried to remove it from here and analyze it outside of that context. The reason maybe why you might be confused about it is because you've heard people teaching it that way. There are many who see these beautiful, poetic words, and granted, they are some that Paul doesn't use anywhere else in any of his writings. Some of them are. And they come to the conclusion that this was then probably a pre-Pauline hymn or a saying about Jesus Christ. And so they remove it and they look at it all by itself and try to decide what it is saying based on a myriad of other factors that are not as important as its context. Some people even reaching the conclusion that Paul is quoting something here that shows a different theology than his and is a more accurate representation of what Christians believed then. But whether Paul wrote it or whether he is quoting it, they are completely misunderstanding the nature of Scripture in that interpretation. Because as we have been learning from Brett's Equipping Hour class, so if you haven't been coming to that, make sure you're here Again, next week at 9, as we've been learning in that class, each passage of Scripture has one meaning. And it's the meaning that the author intended through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If this passage is the Word of God through the Spirit-inspired writing of the Apostle Paul, then its meaning is whatever Paul was intending when he wrote it down. Not a meaning that others assign to it in spite of what Paul might have thought he was talking about. The, the verses in 6 through 11 might be Paul quoting a hymn that he may or may not have written himself. But even though this is the subject of many articles and many commentaries, it really is only of side importance. Because the reason that we recognize these verses as the word of God is because he placed them in the inspired letter to the Philippians. The reason they are recognized as canon is because of their location in a canonical book. We have no reference to them in Christian history outside of the context of Philippians 2. Therefore, when we're reading this passage... We must follow the same rules as we do with all of the rest of Scripture. Whatever Paul meant by placing these words here is what they mean. It is only in this context that it has divine weight and authority over every believer. And so in that case, it becomes much easier to understand. 
We, we need to know that when we come to this passage. And we also need to remember that this is a passage that is describing divine mysteries to us. The, the miracle of the incarnation. This is a miracle beyond all other miracles. It is something that, thanks to Scripture, we are able to understand and we are able to describe truthfully. But as limited created beings with a limited vocabulary, we cannot understand it fully. We can understand it truly, not fully. So with all that in mind, all that in mind by way of introduction, let's get into the text that we are looking at today in verses 5 through 8. Let's read those again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 5 is the imperative that governs this entire section. This is the command. Verse 5 is the command. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is command in, in verses 6 through 8 are the description of what it looks like. So Paul is saying, this is how you are to think. Think like Jesus did. And, and just to make sure that you understand the depths of what I'm talking about here, I want you to go in understanding Jesus's example of humility. So here's what I'm talking about. So the, the text literally says, think like this or think in this way. And that the imperatival uh, verb that we see here is a, is a form of the same one that we see that we saw used twice in verse two. Paul is clearly trying to connect this command in verse five to what he said in verse two about being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's trying to connect this command there. The mind that you need to have, the one that is going to lead to church unity, the one who is truly humble. What does that mind look like? It looks like this. It looks like Christ. You think like Christ. The ESV translation can kind of soften the weight of the imperative a little here because it can make it sound like you already possess the same attitude as Christ and you just need to live it out. And so there is a little bit of truth uh, to that understanding in that uh, what is being commanded of us here is only possible because of your union with Christ, um, but, but it leaves the word also untranslated, which, which should give the verse more of the rendering of, have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice as well that, that this is a plural command to the church again. Right? Did you notice that? Have this mind among yourselves. It's not just that each of us is to individually focus on having the same mind as Christ. It's that we are to be a community of believers who are marked by this type of thinking 
by lives that, re, that reflect this type of humility. So here Paul is completing his command from 2, 1 through 4 by telling them that this type of church unity, this type of humility, this is what it looks like. He gives them the command to pursue and prize church unity and then commands them to live humbly among each other, to put others above themselves. And now he shows them that they don't get to define for themselves what obedience to that command looks like. He expands on the command by pointing to the perfect example, telling them, this is what the humble life that you must live among each other looks like. This is how it is accomplished. It's accomplished by a community of Christians looking to the example of the humility of Christ and then determining to have that same mindset that we see in him. Because when you think about it, it is almost impossible to be rightly thinking about everything that took place in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and then to be actively thinking about what he did and then to act selfishly and think only of yourself. It is easy to think highly of yourself and to, to reach the bar of humility and personal righteousness when you're just looking at examples of the people that are esteemed in this world. But is it any, is it any wonder that our children and young people are so selfish and proud when the examples that they are constantly looking to are celebrities and athletes? Is it any wonder also why so many in the church struggle with the same things when the people most prominently before us are politicians, even, and even church leaders, even some really good church leaders. It is so rare to see humility exemplified any, anywhere in this world when we look around. So we are being told here to stop looking there. Stop looking there. Look at the example of Jesus Christ. Strive for that mindset. Look at the example of Jesus Christ. Let it dominate your thinking, who he is, what he has done, and then live accordingly. A faithful church must be a community of believers who are striving to conform to Christ's example of humility. That's, that's the point of the sermon today. A faithful church must be a community of believers who are striving to conform to Christ's example of humility. A, that is essentially just paraphrasing Paul's command in verse 5. So then we must ask ourselves, what is this example? How is it that we are to be thinking? And we'll see this laid out in, in three points today. Three words, I'm going to give you three words that will help you to organize your thinking as we look at this passage. Surrender, servant, and submission. Surrender, servant, and submission. Unlike when Paul uses words, those probably aren't the best words to use, but they all begin with an S, and I didn't want to spend a lot more time thinking of better ones, so hopefully this will help uh, organize your thoughts at the very least. Point number one, surrender. Surrender, and we see this right away in verse 6, in the, as the example starts. Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
So, before we go any further, we need to make sure that we understand what is being said here. Because the English versions can be read as if Christ was something like God, but not really God. And so here, that's where we start to get tripped up because we're, we're talking about, again, divine mysteries, which, which no language is adequate to fully describe. But within the English language, there's some additional problems. The, the word uh, that's translated as form here, uh, the Greek word morphe, it's, it's not that it's a wrong word or a bad translation. Most English translations use that word here. It's just that while this is probably the best word that English can supply here, it's still really an inadequate one. Uh, the word does mean form or shape, but, but not in terms of external features or, or outward recognition. It is in reference actually to the qualities that are essential to the nature of something. Qualities that are essential to the nature of something. So, so the, the, a good definition that I found in a couple of sources is, it means a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. The word, that word, the morphe, is, is found in only two places in all of inspired scripture. In this verse and in the next verse. There's another word that can also be translated as form, uh, which refers more to the outwards, outward appearance of something, and that's also a word that we'll see later in this passage. So because of the range of context uh, the word, that the word can cover, it is, uh, it is heavily dependent on knowing the context that you're reading it in. And the context of this passage is eternity past where it says right there, though he was in the form of God, that, that, that where he says, though he was, is better, almost better rendered as existing as, or though he existed as. The, the, so the, the, it's, a, it's a present participle, and it, so it's pointing to his, his pre-existent and eternal state. It's literally something like, though he was in the form of God, it could be rendered more something like existing as he does as truly God. Existing as he does as truly God. And this is consistent then with other passages of Scripture which teach us the same thing. Like where Paul writes in Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or the beginning of Hebrews 1.3, where we read that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So the picture of Christ that we get in the first part of this verse is that of the second person of the divine trinity in, in, the, in the form of that which he truly is, the eternal God, existing eternally, continually, without interruption, and in an ongoing state of the fullness of divinity. And now it is from that state that we see his, this aspect of his willful surrender. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So even, this is, even though this is who the eternal Christ is, it says he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
This is, this is difficult again because the word translated as grasp is the Greek word harpagmon, which is another Greek word that is used only here in the entire New Testament. Grasped, again, is a good translation, but it just can't entail everything that's present in the word. So it, it, it has to do with the idea of clinging to something for your own advantage or, or it's clinging to something, unwilling to release something for your own advantage or for your own good. So you can see then why Paul uses the term here because it, it really corresponds well with what, with what he has just said in verse 4, right? And what he has just said in verse 4 where he says, let each of you look not only to, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The concept of not looking out for your own interests. Even though the pre-incarnate Christ exists in, in the true form of God, he chose not to, he chose not to use that position selfishly. He was willing to surrender the full exercise of his divine privileges and to appear before a world, a world that was created through him in such a way that people would be able to pass by him on the street without having what, they, what should have happened be something more like the experience of Isaiah and Isaiah 6 of crumbling to the ground in humility and worshiping him. It's what should have happened. So he does not cease to be God, but he willingly lets go of the, of the recognition as God that is due to him. And it, it, is, it is something that we cannot possibly comprehend. We can't possibly comprehend the humility of Christ that takes place in the incarnation. We can't even fathom, even in our most clear theological moment, we can't understand the height from which the Son descended in becoming man. If in the incarnation, think about this, if in the incarnation, if he had come as the greatest and most powerful earthly king in all of human history, the drop in his recognized position still would have been a humiliation greater than anything we can comprehend. Our Lord did not consider the recognition of his position as eternal God something to be selfishly used. Is that how you think of all that you possess? And none of us have anything on that level. What about even the most minuscule things? If we're honest, don't we naturally take everything that we are given by God, even though we, we, we know we are stewards, isn't our first thought so often about ourselves and how we can use something for our advantage first and then maybe use the leftover for someone else? The one who deserves to receive all worship and glory at every moment in time from those who were created through him, those who have also made themselves enemies of him, Christ willingly surrendered that recognition that he deserved when he came as the incarnate son. And people, human beings, were actually permitted to just walk by him without acknowledging anything. Have you ever seen 
those, those videos of celebrities being treated like normal people and then getting all frustrated that they aren't being recognized eventually. You know, they try for a while to be humble. But at some point, they, they pull out the, some form of the do-you-know-who-I-am card and expect people to snap into place. Right? We, we expect power. That's what we expect. We expect power to be used for the purpose of the one in power. There might be a show of using that power for the good of someone else, but it's only a, a kind of a secondary byproduct of the person using it for their own gain. Right? Even as, as we watch the candidates for political office and we see and hear their accomplishments and what they've done for us, none of us are so naive as to think, what a, you know, what a great thing for that politician to do for the community with absolutely no ulterior motives. Oh, how wonderful. Of course their own advantage is what's driving them. And that's probably why we're hearing about it. For their sake. Essentially, in elections, we're always trying to decide what person's pursuit of their own selfish interests is going to be best for us. And we vote for that person. In stark contrast to everything we see around us in culture, Jesus Christ Although he in no way ever ceased to be fully God in the incarnation, humbly surrendered more than we could possibly imagine. He did it for our sake. While on earth he never ceased to be God, he never denied that he was God, but he refused to use his existence as God for selfish reasons. He never used his power or authority for personal advantage. In light of the example of Christ, what could we possibly refuse to let go of for the sake of him or others? I've been, I got to say something positive though, because I've been so encouraged to see in our church so many people who refuse to use their positions in their earthly jobs or their expertise in certain fields or their success in certain fields or even their retirement for their own advantage. I see many already following the example of Christ and taking all that they have access to, not just their finances, but their time, their energy, their skills, their talents, and humbly using them for the sake of others and for the church. If that doesn't describe you, let us as a church look to the amazing example of Christ and set aside all of the power, all of the privileges that might be afforded to us, that might be given to us for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his church. Point number two, servant. Servant. So look at verse seven. He doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That first phrase, emptied himself, that has been the cause of much confusion and, conf- and controversy, but it need not be. Right? To take it in context, it is not really that difficult to understand. And in fact, you can probably start to see it if you've been taking that hermeneutics class. The problem, once again, is when you remove it from its context and don't think uh, through all of Scripture as you read. Uh, the verb kanao, that's the, the word that's translated as to, as to make empty, and the literal meaning is to make empty, but, but figuratively, the figurative meaning of it means to deprive something of its power or effectiveness. 
Once again, the problem lies with the inflexibility of the English word empty, and not with the language of Paul. The most widely read lexicon says that this word means taking away the prerogatives of status or position. Many people, many cults, use this passage to say that Christ emptied himself of some of his divine attributes to become man. But as anyone who comes to our shepherds, theologians, and men class knows, God is his attributes. And Christ could not empty himself of even one of them, or he would cease to be God. And we know that there was never a time that he ceased to be God. We know that that never took place because everything is still holding together. Because Colossians 1.17 tells us, and as well as that Hebrews 1.3 we read earlier, tells us that in him all things hold together. So the Son of God stopped being God for any moment of time, there would be no creation left. This word, it does not mean that, there are, that there's something that was full that's now somehow been emptied. That, that word is used four other times in the New Testament. It's, it's always used by Paul, and every time he uses it, he uses it in a metaphorical way. And no one has ever had issues with those other ways. Every time it's used, it's, it's used to indicate something that could be potentially thought of in a way that, that now lacks the power that it should have naturally had. He uses it to describe the, an empty faith. I, I, don't want, I want, don't want faith to be empty. I don't want the gospel to be emptied of its power or my boasting to be emptied. The term is never used in the New Testament to refer to something that once was filled but has been emptied of something. And even as you look at the text you see no, the text before us, you see no mention of Jesus losing anything. So that question, we, we don't need to find something or think through what is it that Christ has been emptied of. That question is missing the point of the passage and it's disregarding the context in the rest of scripture. There's no reason to use the term here in a way that it is used nowhere else in scripture just to start a heresy. Rather, this has the sense of saying, so kind of like what we saw in Isaiah 53, the language of being poured out should naturally remind us of that type of language we saw there at the end of Isaiah 53. You don't say when you're reading Isaiah 53, what was Jesus poured out from? Because it's obviously speaking in, in, in a metaphorical, powerful, poetic way. Plus, again, those of you who are learning and studying hermeneutics, you can see that the phrase emptied himself in, in this verse, in verse 7, has two modifying clauses attached to it. The way in which Christ emptied himself or poured himself out, the way that he divested himself of certain prerogatives or status, the way that he was deprived of his proper place was by taking something upon himself rather than by losing anything. It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. So it is so important, especially heading into the Christmas season, that you, you don't say things like, Jesus exchanged being God for being man. 
We're never told anything like this. Rather, we see that he who is fully God humbled himself, not by removing anything, but by taking something, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He empties himself through addition. He voluntarily takes on something that deprives him of his proper place. It's kind of like the idea of if you were to voluntarily put some handcuffs on yourself, nothing essential about you has changed. You are who you still were, but rather by adding something to your nature, you have voluntarily limited yourself in some ways. This is still an imperfect metaphor and don't take it too far. But it must be stressed that it is the will of Christ to take on the form of a servant and to be born in the likeness of men. So, so not only does he humble himself by surrendering some of the full rights and privileges that are his as the eternally existent God, but in the incarnation, he is a servant, or, or again, the actual word there, the doulos the word for slave. And here in this instance is where we find that other use of morphe in the Bible. That, 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 that which is essential, uh, uh, that is what, which is of essential nature. So the one who has the essential nature of God takes on the essential nature of a servant, of a slave. God, truly God, becomes truly servant, truly slave. One whose every decision is wrapped up in the will of another. He, he forsakes the rights of his lordship, becomes a servant. It would have already been, right, even up to this point, an incomprehensible act of humility for him to just take on the nature of a created man. But he goes beyond that. The, the Lord over all of creation, the owner and possessor of all things, takes on himself the true nature of a servant. The true nature of one in whom everything that he possesses belongs to another. As the, as the servant that we saw that we read in Isaiah 52 and 53, we see this one who not only comes as the owner of nothing, but one who must now take upon himself the burdens of others. Not only does he set aside the rights that he has as the divine Lord, but he goes even further and sets aside the rights that he has as a man, as a free man. Even more amazing, he chooses to be a servant. Amazingly, he says, that's what he says of himself. In Mark 10, 45, also in Matthew 20, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And it also says that he emptied himself by, the, emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. He becomes a servant, he's Born in the likeness of many, he came as all men do. Likeness here refers to that which is made to be like something, not just similar. This is, this is part of his becoming a servant. He was fully human, 
He was fully human, though his fullness was greater than his humanity, as one commentator put it. He has become fully human with all of the same human limitations that the rest of us have. He was born. He has to grow. He has to learn. He has to mature. He became hungry and thirsty and tired. He had to deal with physical pain and with emotional pain. He took upon himself all of the weaknesses inherent in becoming human. And when you are thinking in these terms, it is not hard to see and understand why taking on a human nature is tantamount to emptying himself or to pouring himself out. Not only is it amazing to stand in awe of the magnitude of the descent of the Son of God from the power and prestige of of his position as very God of very God, but then he goes on to further model to us what it means to live as truly human. He shows us what it means to live as human, as God created us to live. Young people, pay special attention to this. If ever there was a young person whose thoughts and opinions on things were needed by the world, it was Jesus Christ. It is remarkable, the mark of true humility that God incarnate understood what it meant to be human and his need to learn and mature more than every other young person who is not the incarnate God. Christ humbled himself from a position that we can't possibly imagine. And then after being born, waited 30 years before his public ministry. 30 years before any of his public discourses or before he started recruiting followers. 30 years before he decided to start intentionally influencing others. In our only canonical story of Christ as a young person, we see him, as Luke 2.46 tells us, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And even though the next verse goes on to say that the teachers were amazed by him, we see that the intention of Christ, of of Jesus, was, was a desire to learn from them. Young people in this generation a generation that is far more biblically illiterate than the generations that have come before you. It is a a culture that is encouraging you to pursue having greater and greater influence as a young person, to be that person whose opinion everyone else wants to know, to be the one who has the most followers. Young Christians even are being told to think far too highly of their abilities and their wisdom to buy into the world's narrative that they should expect and even demand to be heard and respected. That for whatever reason, that kind of respect is even owed to them. And Christian ministries everywhere are looking to elevate any gifted Christian young person that they can find. They're being and it, to the detriment of the church, they're being told that they should be teaching and leading. That's the trap that I fell into when I was coming out of college. It's, it's generally just based on a comparison with other people their age who just aren't motivated. And then it's so easy to buy into that thinking when others are telling you that. 
And you think that just because you've maybe read more books or, or have a few years of some sort of Christian ministry experience, that you're now qualified. This model is being embraced across our country as churches are passing on, on senior, meaning older pastors, to try and get the next young person filling pulpits and ministry positions with people who might be qualified based on a comparison with others their own age, but not biblically. I totally bought into this right out of college. Don't make that mistake. If you are a godly young person and you're just striving for the regular means of grace that all Christians are striving for, which is what you should be doing, it is extremely possible that in this culture that is almost devoid of true Christian leadership and just basic Christian faithfulness that someone will see you and tempt you to think way too highly of your abilities, not to mention wisdom. Christian young people, follow the example of Jesus Christ. Strive for knowledge and wisdom. Ask questions. Sit at the feet of the older and the wiser. Believe with with all of your heart that you do not know as much as you think you do and that you desperately need the wisdom of God. Fight the cultural example that is telling you that your opinions and your beliefs need to be heard, that they're valid just because you now have access to mediums that allow you to get them out there. Jesus Christ remains silent in this area till he was 30 at least. Don't waste your youth pursuing the type of influence that the Bible expects you to have when you are older. Use this time to equip yourself for that day. Look to Jesus as your example. Sit quietly, learn, ask questions. Don't seek leadership and influence. And when those opportunities do begin to arise, pursue them cautiously while seeking and submitting to as much godly counsel as you can. Point number three, submission. Submission, we see this in the final verse of this passage. Where he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Here we see again the word form in our English Bible, but this is actually that different, more common Greek word. This is the more common one that is closer to our English word of form. It has more to do with with external appearance. So what is being said here is that when you combine this verse with the last one, is that Christ truly was a man, and he appeared to be a man. He He didn't appear to be some sort of God man. He appeared as a man. So with, with all of this in mind, the unbelievable distance that has been traveled from, from Christ who exists as God in very nature all the way to the point of a human servant. Again, a measure of humility that we can't even imagine. We, we've already seen Christ stoop down so low that that makes no sense to us. And and even from this already incredibly low state, he stoops 
even farther. He humbles himself even more by now becoming obedient to the point of death. He doesn't become obedient to death, as some have said. He is obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Jesus Christ is the only person to ever live who needed to accept death as part of his obedience. The rest of us have no choice. We, we will die. That was not the case with him. That's, the, that's what he said in John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one else can make a statement like that. Jesus, even as he has engaged in now in this ultimate act of humiliation and becoming man, he still doesn't have to die. He still has to choose to do it as an act of humility. He's doing it out of obedience to the Father. This was the plan from eternity past. The plan that we saw unfold in Isaiah 52 and 53. The incarnate second person of the Trinity will willingly die for the sin of his people. Our sacrifice for sins is the only one, the only one who died in our place. He did it willingly. He did it obediently. Jesus Christ is the ultimate model of humble obedience. Incarnate God joyfully submitting to the will of the Father. And it goes even farther than that. It's, it's not just death, but death on a cross. The most painful and shameful death imaginable. The cross was not the symbol of salvation that we think of it now. No one would have worn it as jewelry. That would have been disgusting. Paul leaves out the definite article there. So it doesn't say the cross, it says a cross. It's done, that's done intentionally. So we don't think of this death on the cross the way we always think of it. When we say the cross, we, we know exactly what the cross is that we're talking about, right? Right now we can look back and see it and we recognize it. When I say the cross, you know the one cross in history that I'm talking about. We, we sing songs about what was accomplished on the cross. But Paul reminds us here what death on a cross meant. It wasn't the cross then. It wasn't the, the, the center point of our salvation that we see it as now. There was nothing special about it yet. It was Jesus Christ, the one who was in very nature of God, descending all the way to the point of dying in the most embarrassing and painful way that has been devised, maybe even to this day. Dying as a common criminal hung on a tree, and therefore, and therefore all, all familiar with the Jewish religion looked at him as cursed by God. The, the opposite of what everyone thought that he was claiming that he was. Not the Messiah. Cursed by God. The only man with the power to forego death becomes obedient to the point of death. And it is this death the unbelievable humility. If, if you or I had the power over death and we, and we chose to lay down our lives anyway, wouldn't we make it at least a little more noble? Wouldn't we want it to inspire onlookers or make some kind of point? 
or, or rub it in the faces of the people putting us to death? Something to be remembered? The way, you know, the way that the heroes in movies die? But those who witnessed the death of Jesus were those who joyfully watched him die because it proved that they were right about him. All the Pharisees that had been plotting against him for so long, they won. They were able to point to the onlookers who had maybe started to doubt them in hopes that this might be the Messiah and say, see, we told you so. We told you so. All of this going on as Jesus listened to them through the most painful, physical agony we can imagine. The disciples, the ones who, who gave their lives to follow him, get to see the payoff of all their investment as defeat and shame and hopelessness. Christ had the power to change all of that. If, if he was going to be obedient to the point of death, he could, he could have done it more heroically. We know in history that we record some fantastic final words from some of the great martyrs. Jesus Christ could have put them all to shame by giving himself a more noble and even a swift death after speaking some sort of final words that would have left the disciples cheering and the Pharisees shaking. Instead, he writhed in pain, cursed by God, only able to get out a few words that didn't really make sense to anyone watching. You have the power over death. You're going to make the decision to obey the Father and die. Don't you choose a million other ways to do it than that? So he obeys the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And by dying this way, it was the demonstration of the ultimate act of obedience to the Father. This is the type of obedience that comes from one whose only desire is to please the Father. He died in such a way that only the Father would be pleased. It didn't matter to him that it seemed to everyone else that the Pharisees were right and he was wrong. He didn't need to do it in such a way that his disciples would have more confidence or be inspired. His only motivation was obedience to the Father. He remains completely humble all the way through his act of obedience. He doesn't burst out in anger at those punishing him. He doesn't scream from the cross about how unjust, how unfair this is. The Roman government ought to be ashamed of themselves. It's the absolute humility marked by a perfect obedience, even down to his thoughts and his attitude, all coming from one who is in very nature God, humbling himself all the way to the, to the point of a slave dying on a cross. This is the example that we are pointed to. This is what we need to see. True humility. The kind of humility that God, through Paul, has called us to. The kind of humility that does nothing from selfish ambition. That truly considers others as more valuable than ourselves. It comes as we look at the example of Jesus Christ and it culminates in complete and total obedience to God the Father in all things. And that's how true humility should be in our lives. Full obedience to God in every area of our life. The type of obedience that looks the same whether anyone is around or not. That is concerned only about being obedient to God and not what others are thinking. 
thinks it's fine for the world to hear whatever it hears, the kind that doesn't need to vindicate itself or need some other person to know or see. Just obedience to God, no matter what. Do you find it hard to truly love others? Kind of hard to put them above yourself, to actually consider their needs as more important than your own? What does your private obedience to God look like? If true humility culminates in the type of obedience that we see in Christ right here, we should see it reflected in our desire to please him no matter who is watching. There are no other factors motivating your obedience. You're not doing it for anyone else. It's what it needs to be. That makes total sense, right? The heart of true humility is one that places obedience to God above everything else. It is the demonstration that you recognize him and his word as supreme. If your desire is to be pleasing God every moment and, and care nothing for what others think and care nothing for making your own life easier or meeting your own needs, fully, in, fully trusting God to do that for you, then you can expect that you will be the type of humble person who is always placing others above yourself. That, that's, that's what comes from that. Like Christ, you, shouldn't, you won't retaliate. You will not lash out with some proud need for vindication. And it gets to the point where maybe you are required to be obedient to the point of death. Or maybe to the point of arrest. And many of us like to believe, don't we, that and when the day comes that our obedience is required even to the point of, of death or maybe even to the point of being arrested, which is probably coming in our lifetimes, we want to believe that we'll stand firm and that our love for God will be proven as we are persecuted for the sake of Christ. We expect to obey like that on that day, yet when we are by ourselves, we demonstrate our true love for God and desire to be obedient to him isn't even present in our moments by ourself. We expect to boldly stand for God and his gospel while we continue to fail in these, you know, smaller issues of private obedience that no one else sees, like how we spend our free time or how much we give to the church or maybe our laziness or coveting, being anxious and worried. We, we let all of those exist in us, and yet somehow we expect that on the day when it is required of me to stand for Christ or go to jail or stand for Christ and die, I'm going to be obedient then. We just kind of made some sort of peace with all of these other things. We might put on a show for others when they confront us with them, but when we are by ourselves, we demonstrate how important obedience to God really is. If this is you. You need to spend time focusing on Jesus Christ, pleading with God to make you more like him. To have the same mind of Christ that we see in this passage. Fear that the humility of believers that is proved by a desire to please God above all else is nowhere close to where it needs to be for where our country is headed. Persecution going to get more intense. Right now, there seem to be a lot of faithful Christians who do sound like they're ready to face it. They sound like it. But as you look closer, it 
starting to look more and more like a group of people just kind of pumping themselves up before a fight. It's more like that than anything else. Another day I watched a video of some Christians who were arrested uh, for a peaceful protest. All they were doing was they were, they were wanting to express their, their desire to gather as a church. So they met at a, uh, at a government building and they were singing some great hymns of the faith outside. After they, and they were told they weren't allowed to do that. And even though BLM protesters who were being more obnoxious than they were were not being arrested... These people were. That is wrong. We know that's wrong, and there's probably more of that coming. But as, I, as I watch the video of them being arrested, with the sound on, hear some of these people who had just been singing Amazing Grace, cursing and yelling profanities at the police officers. And in an interview with some of the men who were there, the that aired later, the, the attitude, the mindset that came through was, was more like men warning other Christians to get, you know, get ready, get ready, it's coming. Christians got to get ready for battle. Again, it bore more of a resemblance of a football team trying to get psyched up before a big game and to humble followers of Jesus Christ whose humility leads them to the point of obedience at all costs. There's little to no resemblance of one who was oppressed and afflicted, yet opened not his mouth, who like a sheep before his shears was silent, opened not his mouth. Looked nothing like the person who had his moment of greatest unjust physical pain cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I've never been persecuted to the point of being arrested, so I don't know if I could have done any better. But I know it can't look like that. Right now I have a concern, actually, for how I might react in a similar position, especially with what I've been exposing myself to more and more during this political season. How much of my attitude about losing my religious liberty... How much of my attitude about Christian persecution, how much of my thinking on those things is informed more by right-wing media and clever social media posts than it is by gazing at the example of Jesus Christ? I have a concern that many Christians, maybe many of us, are preparing ourselves for stronger and stronger persecution by imploring ourselves to get psyched up, to be bold and strong for when it gets tough. Looking to ourselves. Doing all of this without cultivating the heart of humility that prizes obedience to God above all else that we see in Jesus. Christian, what good is it to be salt and light? What good is our courage in the face of persecution and adversity if it bears no resemblance to Christ? Beloved, in view of what we see in Christ in this passage, what do we possess that we would not be able to joyfully give up if it is required of us? If our Lord became a servant and a slave, 
How could we live lives clinging to our rights and our freedom rather than living joyfully for the sake of others? What is it that could possibly be taken away from us that could cause us to respond with pride and disdain? Because those things are going to be taken away from us. It's just getting worse out there. Persecution will get stronger and stronger. No matter who wins the election, it's coming. In a world that offers examples of proud, lying politicians, immorality-loving celebrities, and even duplicitous, constantly failing ministry leaders, and every other person with a voice on any social media platform, now more than ever, we need to be looking at Jesus looking to him, asking God to help us to conform more and more to him, to have the same mind as Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we're going to be found faithful as a church, especially with everything going on right now, we need to step back and focus on the example, gaze upon the example of humility we see in Jesus Christ and strive to make that our mindset. Be like him. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And even though it's the case with every portion of Scripture, just obviously, obviously the inspired word of God of this universe, no human mind can write something like this apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I do pray that we would be a church that strives to live out the example that we've seen in Jesus Christ. That we would be marked by humility. That humility would uh, be exemplified in in lives of obedience and in in a unity within this church that is unexplainable other than by the work of God in the lives of his people. Father, we thank you for this. We, we do pray for this week and everything that is going to unfold. And we pray that no matter what happens in all of it, that we would reflect our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.